0: Good evening. I'm Carol Doherty. I'm the director of the Newhouse Center for the Humanities, and I'm so pleased to welcome you all here this evening, and really, really excited about the program that we have ahead of us. At the Newhouse Center, we're particularly interested in developing programs that brings artists together with critics in a productive dialogue with each other. And in that spirit, I'm thrilled to present tonight's program on comics, autobiography, and mapping memory. Between them, Linda Berry and Alison Bechtel have created some of the most significant autobiographies of the 21st century in comics form. And this evening's readings and conversations will focus on how comic autobiographies like theirs have changed the field of contemporary narrative. Alison Bechtel has said, I always felt like there was something inherently autobiographical about cartooning, while Linda Berry has remarked, I always think of images as lowering the drawbridge where stuff can cross over memory. So tonight, to help us think about what the innovative form of comics brings to the telling of one's life story, or for telling any kind of story, we've invited Alison Bechtel and Linda Barry here, together with Hilary Chute, a literary critic who works on the graphic narrative, to help us think about how lives and texts are mapped out in both words and images. So let me tell you a little bit about Hillary, and then I'm gonna hand things over to her to host this evening's conversations and readings. Hillary Chute is the Neubauer Family Assistant Professor of English at the University of Chicago, and is at the forefront of scholarship on the graphic narrative and its relationship to more traditionally text-based literature. Her recent book, Graphic Women, Life Narrative, and Contemporary Comics, examines the graphic narrative work of five authors, including Alison Bechdel and Linda Berry. She argues that the medium of comics has opened up new spaces for nonfiction narrative, particularly for expressing certain kinds of stories typically relegated to the realm of the private. She's also associate editor of Art Spiegelman's Metamouse and has written about comics and culture for venues including The Village Voice and The Believer. So I can't think of anyone better suited to moderate our reading today and to begin a conversation with our two artists and cartoonists, and one that she will then invite you all to enjoy. So I'm gonna hand things over to Hillary to introduce our guests. Thanks.
1: Thank you to everyone for coming. Um, I can't think of two people that I admire more than I admire Linda Berry and Alison Bechtel. And I will introduce them briefly before turning the stage over to Linda. So in addition to having been my teacher in the summer of 2006 in her course, Writing the Unthinkable, which I have to say was one of the best things I ever did in my life, signing up to be Linda's student, Linda Berry is the author of 17 books and one of the most famous literary cartoonists active today, and I think one of the foremost chroniclers in any printed medium, perhaps, of American adolescence. Her weekly syndicated comic strip, Ernie Pook's Comique, ran for over 30 years. And the author, Nick Hornby, writing um, in the New York Times and reviewing Barry's 2002 book, 100 Demons, wrote, Barry seems to me to almost single-handedly justify the form. She's one of America's very best contemporary writers. Now, because Linda is the author of 17 books, Um, which to me is um, impressive and amazing, I'd like to read the titles of these books. So her work Two Sisters, which I mentioned last night, uh, she would Xerox on her own and send out to buyers in individually decorated manila envelopes. It's from 1979. We have Girls and Boys from 1981. Big Ideas from 1983. One of my favorite titles, Naked Ladies, Naked Ladies, Naked Ladies from 1984, Everything in the World, 1986, The Fun House, Down the Street, The Good Times Are Killing Me, which was a novel and then a play, Come Over, Come Over, My Perfect Life, It's So Magic, The Freddy Stories, Cruddy from 1999, one of the best novels I've read in my life, The Greatest of Marlis. 100 Demons, her so-called auto <laughs> What It Is, from 2008, which is an activity book, and her most recent book, Picture This, the Nearsighted Monkey Book, from 2010. Plus, uh, it's worth mentioning that her spoken word recording, The Linda Berry Experience, from 1993, is one of the most hilarious things I've ever heard in my entire life. Now, Alison Bechdel published Fun Home, a family tragic comic, in 2006. Um, in my opinion, sort of forever altering the terrain of contemporary literature and contemporary comics. Now, I first met Alison um, in the summer of 2006 when I interviewed her for an article in The Village Voice. And she wrote on her blog later that day This was um, while she was doing a book tour, her first book tour for Fun Home. It's a good thing I've been blogging this book tour because otherwise I'm not sure I'd remember it. Today I had a podcast, two signings, and a long, intense newspaper interview with a woman who did her doctoral dissertation on autobiographical comics. So um, that was me and As I've said to her before, well, I apologize for turning a one-hour interview into three-plus hours. I have to say that reading Fun Home for the first time and writing about Fun Home for The Voice was one of the most gratifying intellectual experiences I've had writing about anything. Now, Alison Bechdel uh, first published her strip, Dykes to Watch Out For, in the paper Woman News in 1983. And there have been 11 subsequent collections of dykes to watch out for with uh, titles such as hot, throbbing dykes to watch out for, (laughs) dykes and other sundry carbon-based forms to watch out for, and my personal favorite post dykes to watch out for. (laughs) In 2008, Houghton Mifflin published the essential dykes to watch out for with a new introduction by Allison. And Allison additionally published the very first book review in the form of comics in the New York Times in 2009, in the book review. And uh, she has so many accomplishments that I could enumerate further, but the one I'll leave you with is in November 2006, she was invited to sit on the usage panel of the American Heritage Dictionary. Please join me in welcoming Linda Barry. <laughs>
2: help? That little light or do you like it like that? I have a couple things I want to say um, right away. One, this is the only way I could ever get into this school. <laughs> I went to the Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington, and it was, um, but i got to set my little timer thing here so I don't. um I to set it for three hours. <laughs> and you can leave. Anytime you want, as long as you get out any way besides those doors. Um, I went to the Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington. In 1974 I started, and I was telling this story earlier. Um, That's when in 74 people thought hippies were here to stay. And so they built a hippie college in in Washington State. But there weren't enough hippies, so they were like desperate, especially in-state hippies. So that's the only way I got into college back then. And um, I always say my entrance exam was index card, Elmer's glue, peace sign, lent- lentils, full <laughs> scholarship. Um, so it's really a thrill to be here. Um, the other thing is that I was so delighted to see the Wisconsin um, posters for the union stuff <laughs> because because it really let me know that the cheese does not stand alone. <laughs> um, and I think that's it. So um, I'm going to um, just go ahead and read some slides, and then uh, we'll see how much time I have after that. So these, this is a mix of um, stuff from my last two books, what it is, and picture this. So there's what it is, and there's picture this. And what it is is about writing, and picture this is about drawing. Do you wish you could write? Do you wish you could draw? There's a song called, My Mind's Got a Mind of Its Own. There's my husband, Kevin, who I always, when I describe him, I always say he's a cross between George Clooney and Santa Claus. (laughs) And everyone can find him in a crowd after I say that, Okay? There's a song called, My Mind's Got a Mind of Its Own. There's my husband saying, what's wrong, hon? Nothing, I'm moody. How come? I don't know. It's a good way to put it. You want to walk in the grove? Yeah, but no. Which means, I don't know. The thing I call my mind seems to be a kind, kind of like a landlord that does, doesn't really know its tenants. Come on, just walk. I don't even know what's bugging me. Who is playing that music? That song I say is stuck in my head. Which apartment are they in? Are you worried about your book? Oh, there's my book, The War, The Laundry, Things I Said 15 Years Ago, The Environment. My double chin, unanswered mail, what an ass I am at parties, what a dirty house we have. And I've had the song Goodbye Yellow Brick Road playing in my head for days. (laughs) Where do sudden troublesome thoughts come from? What about you? And he says, oh, for me, it's tornadoes, family, all the wood I still need to cut. And then there's this kind of K-Tel collection of my 25 greatest screw-ups of all time. I replay that one a lot. Say, man, I know I'm still cringing about stuff I said when I was nine. Why is there anxiety about a past we cannot change? The top of my mind has no answer for this. Walking does make me feel better. He says, movement's key. And I wonder why. There's another part of my mind which seems not to know what year it is at all. I find myself arguing with people in my head, people I haven't seen for 15 years, or apologizing or trying to explain. It's like there's a place in me where it's all still alive. And while you were sleeping, and there's my characters, um, Ar- Arna and Marlis without their glasses on, while you were sleeping, the nearsighted monkey arrives with her imaginary friend. The staring cephalopod invites you to attend. Please attend. <laughs> Attend to the back of your mind. What year is it in your imagination? Does your imagination know what year it is? When I was little, I played a certain staring game that seemed to have invented itself. I would hold myself as still as I could and make my eyes like a toy's eyes that don't move, and I would wait. I would wait for the other things in the room to forget about me and begin to move. My mood seemed to have a lot to do with it. I'd have to make myself very calm and very friendly, the way I would when I wanted a shy animal to come to me. And I knew I had to be patient and willing to wait for a very long time. We lived in a trailer then, and any pictures we had were taped to the walls, and sometimes they fell. But this is not what I mean when I say they could move. I believed there was another world that would show itself to me in the smallest ways. The gray kitten in the picture by my bed would accidentally blink his eyes. The girl in the picture would breathe. And I believed there was another world, but I only noticed it when it became harder to get to. There'd been a time when a toy elephant was as alive as a real rabbit in the grass. I didn't know there were different kinds of aliveness and two worlds contained by each other. I just want to say something about that, about getting a, a world that's harder to get to. Um, I, had a, I was somebody who always wanted an imaginary friend. Some people just had them. I don't know how they got them, and I tried to get one. And uh, then one day I realized I could just lie, so which meant I had an imaginary, imaginary friend, <laughs> which wasn't as good as a real imaginary friend. And I had a friend who had a real imaginary friend, and this was how I knew um, well, one, she said that she had always had this friend, but it was harder, it was harder to get to this friend, which, you know, that's an interesting detail. The second was they had a stupid name. Her friend was named Sprinkles, which, like, no one would choose on purpose. And the third thing was that she could only talk to Sprinkles through a moving fan. Blah, 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 blah. You can't make that shit up, you know what I mean? So I knew her, her, uh, her imaginary friend was real. Something can only become an illusion after disillusionment. Before that, it's something real. But what caused the disillusionment? No one told me the print on the wall was just ink and paper and had no life of its own. At some point, the cat stopped blinking and I stopped thinking it could. But my memory of the blinking cat is still vivid nearly 50 years later. Why? Why would an image of something which never happened travel with me for all of these years? What is an image? This was a question that my teacher, Marilyn Frasca, at the Evergreen State College, asked me when I was 19, and it's directed the course of my life ever since. What is an image? So here I say it's the formless thing which gives things form. When images come to us, where do they come from? Why do they exist? And I say, I believe that they are the soul's immune system and transit system. In fact, the reason I'm standing here before you now in my full organism, Um, is because I drew a picture. And my guess is the reason that you're here is because you're interested in images, or like me, you love the Dykes ball. (laughs) I love Dykes and balls, so I'm totally happy tonight. Uh, Seriously, if they put balls on this side and Dykes on this side and I was in the middle, I'd be just, I'd I'd be paralyzed. (laughs) So my character, Arna, goes to the library and she finds this book. Um, The book was laying on a table at the library and on the cover was a picture of a monkey wearing glasses. The monkey was smoking and she had a pet chicken and the chicken also smoked, but not as much as the monkey. (laughs) What kind of book was it? There's the monkey. While you were out, you had a visitor. Ding dong. And this book is sponsored. The book that she finds is sponsored by a cigarette company called Don't. Smoke Don't. It's the the imaginary cigarette for imaginary creatures everywhere. (laughs) It was an activity book, but the activities were mysterious. Mr. Trunk must find the line that leads him to don't cigarettes. The nearsighted monkey won't fold. Was it a book for kids or grown-ups? The monkey drank beer, played cards, and bought lottery tickets. Was that a good influence? (laughs) Should she check out this book or not? And there's an ad down there for Don't Cigarettes. The nearsighted monkey drank all your wine and read all your tabloids again. Um, A perfect day begins with don't. Try one. (laughs) The line at the library was long and Marlis didn't want to wait. The announcement came on. The library is closing. Come on, Arna, man. My show's going to be on. We got to go. Marlis would not wait. Bye, man. Seriously. I'm out the door. And then there's another meditating monkey smoking don't. Says don't. Keep it in mind, there she is, making, she's making her spaghetti sauce. Uh, where is a story beca- before it becomes words? What is a story before it becomes words? And where is a story after it becomes words? And This is uh, still Arna talking. When we have bad rain, the ceiling changes, new, she- new shapes seep through. Old ones change or disappear, certain animals and also monsters. Stick arm stand, and the smoking squid, and the drip drop fingerman have come and gone, and now there is a rabbit. But it's raining hard, so no one in this world will see that rabbit but me. There are shapes that form in shadows and stains. What makes this happen? Do you see what is there? Why do shapes appear in shadows and stains, Marla says, see there? That's the boss of everyone, it's the pirate chicken. (laughs) Where? By the light fixture. Next car goes by, you'll see the headlights slide over the pirate chicken. Oh, I needed my glasses on. Okay, now I'm seeing it. Is there a power that makes them show themselves? Now you, except no monsters, it's gotta be something nice. Okay, um, and then there's an ad for don't that says don't, take a look. When I try not to see monsters, they are everywhere. Why is it got to be nice? Because that's the rule. You want to forfeit? When we see the water-stained creatures, are we inventing them, or is the ceiling inventing them? Well, I see Gulita, stupid Gulita again, man. No, you love Gulita. You invented her. Nuh-uh. Gulita invented herself. I was on deadline for the book, and I was so into these images, and that was my napkin from lunch, and it fell on the floor. <laughs> And I said, God damn, this stuff is real! Um, no, this, this, is, this is on deadline. So I just glued my napkin onto a page and, finished the book, okay. Um, what is a story made of? Do you know my story? That's Abraham Lincoln talking. Um, what, happened when we, what happens when we read a story? Can you remember not being able to read? I knew about reading before I could read, and I knew about words, and I was learning to write the alphabet, and I could pick out certain letters, but they were still pictures to me, and I was drawing them, drawing their picture at school, learning what it took to get the picture right and which lines go where, and somehow drawing a letter becomes writing it. What's the difference? What changed? If you were to draw the alphabet instead of writing it, what would the difference be, and where would it be? The nearsighted monkey wants to race ya. The nearsighted monkey orders one hot dog from the vendor. The nearsighted monkey didn't say she was also bringing her chicken. Now we have two weekend guests. The nearsighted monkey needs 11 more eggs to make a dozen. Her chicken is on the job. When you are a guest, you should not leave banana peels on the windowsills. Your host wants peels in the trash, and you must not say, I will talk about banana peels at a later hour. My show is on. (laughs) People who gave up on drawing a long time ago will still draw with a little kid. Why is it easier to draw with a kid? There is a place where characters dwell, and it's not in thinking. Scrooge and Hamlet are there, along with certain toys we played with. Superman and Batman are there. Sherlock Holmes and King Friday and Lassie are there. Eleanor Rigby is there. And when we are all gone, perhaps we'll be there too, alive in the image world again and again. Um, and then this, it shifts to this. Um, the book shifts a, a little bit about um, drawing and uh, trauma. So this, uh, this, so this is this um, part. Who does war belong to? Who does natural disaster belong to? Who does death belong to? That's my mother saying, oh, I hate that airplane sound. She's from the Philippines, um, and which I know, you, I love saying that because there's that confused German Shepherd look, you know, like, she doesn't look Filipino. And I always say I'm a quarter Norwegian and Norwegian blood can suck the color out of anything, so. <laughs> Which is true, if you have a stubborn stain and a 100% Norwegian friend, just ask them to pass their hands over it. (laughs) So who does war belong to? Who does natural disaster belong to? Who does death belong to? My mother's saying, I hate that airplane sound. And I say, how come? You ask too many questions, you know that, you talk too much. My mother was a kid in a village just outside of Manila when the bombing raids began on September 7, 1941. And my husband, uh, who's a good painter, I just asked him if he could draw a bombing of the Philippines. And um, I just left him a piece of notebook paper, and he did. There's part one, and there's part two. And then, um, what happens to the unspeakable? What happens to the unthinkable? So there's this little list, Iraq, Afghanistan, Katrina, and the death of my friend Sarah." And then this beginning here, it's a quote from um, Dante. And I just did a computer translation, the Google computer translation of, of it. And it says, the Google translation was this, halfway through the journey of our life, I found myself in a dark wood for the straightforward pathway had been lost. My response to a series of well-known disasters and the unexpected deaths of several friends was a confusing compulsion to paint cute animal pictures, in particular the meditating monkey. First drawn while crying in an airport bar en route to a funeral, I found it helped, and I drew it again and again. And I've since painted hundreds more, maybe thousands. There's always a path that is lost. There's some of my monkeys. My mother found comfort in coloring books after the war, even as a young adult. She was balanced when she was hand coloring. Not happy, not sad, she was free of that. Color crayons and hand motions over pictures of cute animals made a way for her. Is making a picture and coloring a picture something other than art? What's the difference between drawing and singing? In terrible times, people sing. Things can be said no other way. Mourners sing and music makes a way. It's not a way out, but a way in. Where do you go when you color? Where can a brush take you? It can take you to the singing place. Imaginary enemies are not hard to conjure into being. Adults are especially good at it and able to create them and unite against them for ages. The friends are harder to come by. Singular and elusive, they do not appear for others and they do not stay. Mine didn't, but the memory stayed. But once I knew the blinking cat could not really blink, was just paper and ink I never saw my friend again, not in the outside world anyway. But paper and ink have conjuring abilities of their own. Arrangements of lines and shapes of letters and words on a series of pages make a world we can dwell and travel in. And I traveled up the mountain as Heidi. I slept on a straw bed in the hayloft and heard the high winds in the trees. And I despaired for my future there, not knowing what was to come. I remember it like it happened to me. I suppose you could say that it did. There are certain children who are told they are too sensitive, and there are certain adults who believe sensitivity is a problem that can be fixed in the way crooked teeth can be fixed and made straight. And when these two come together, you get a fairy tale, a kind of story with hopelessness in it. I believe there's something in these old stories that does what singing does to words. They have transformational capabilities in the way melody can transform mood. They can't transform your actual situation, but they can transform your experience of it. We don't create a fantasy world to escape reality. We create it to be able to stay. And I believe we've always done this, used images to stand and understand what otherwise would be intolerable. It seems that human beings everywhere understand that a child who is never allowed to play will eventually go mad. But how do we know this? And why do we know this? And what happens when we forget? And this is uh, the end of the book. Um, uh, Mar- uh, Arna is never able to find uh, that book again. She puts it down in the library and thinks that she can find it again, and she's never able to find it. So um, what, uh, picture this as sort of her memory of the book, but this is uh, how it concludes. It's called Broken Branches. It's called a branch library, and they're small compared to the main one, which is too far to walk to. Dang, Marla says, see, I told you, closed as of August 31st, please return books to the main library. Weird to see it so empty like it's always been that way. No trace of granny or Mrs. Kedzo or anybody library-ish. There's only a plant in the window and it's dying. Oh man, another case of window plant tragedy. (laughs) The librarian was talking about it when I last went in. How all the branches were cut. Her and Mrs. Kedso saying things were drying up. This is Mrs. Kedso talking. I could spit. Pardon my French, but those bleeps have their heads up there, bleeps. Those cockamamie bleeps are sucking us dry. Bleeping vampires is all they are. And you know they're not going to let Granny into the main. And then we realized Granny's her dog. There is no one to say goodbye to, but the figurine stuck in the planter still reading a book like nothing had changed. Goodbye, you stupid elf, says Marlis. And then she asks me why I'm crying. There's a letter in your mailbox. When you see it, you say, oh no. But she is on her way now. (laughs) The nearsighted monkey is coming to visit. (laughs) And That's my part. All right. Thank you.
3: That was really wonderful, Linda. <laughs> I'm going to like be the anti-Linda Berry. I'm going to get all cerebral on you. So hang on. I'm going to talk about the problem of chronology in memoir and some ways that graphic storytelling, for me, offers a solution to it. Um, so I want to talk about chronology in memoir. And um, this is my little title. I have a title. As you might know, uh, post hoc ergo propter hoc means after this, therefore because of this. And it's a type of logical fallacy, the assumption that since event B happened after event A, it must have been caused by event A. And I've always been strangely entranced by this idea. I think because of a a key traumatic event in my own life which got psychically bound up for me in what seemed like a causal chain, and which I had to unlink by writing a memoir about it. Memoir is in a way my religion, um, in that it requires a certain leap of faith. Uh, I believe that in the formless chaos of my experience there exists a coherent story that has meaning. Uh, and I know that intellectually this is not true, but it's, it's like my version of Pascal's wager. Um, I find life more pleasurable if I believe that it's permeated with meaning, therefore I believe. But memoir for me is also a question of imminence with an I, because it's by figuring out what comes next, how to sequence my ideas and the events of my life that I hope to experience a revelation about what this meaning is. So I'm going to start by reading a very short section of my memoir, Fun Home, to you. Why had I told my parents? I hadn't even had sex with anyone yet. Conversely, according to my mother, my father had been having sex with men for years and not telling anyone. The line that dad drew between reality and fiction was indeed a blurry one. To understand this, one had only to enter his library. For anyone but the landed gentry to refer to a room in their house as the library might seem affected, but there really was no other word for it. (laughs) And if my father liked to imagine himself as a 19th century aristocrat overseeing his estate from behind the leather-topped mahogany and brass Second Empire desk, did that really require such a leap of the imagination? Perhaps affectation can be so thoroughgoing, so authentic in its details that it stops being pretense and becomes, for all practical purposes, real. Over the years, my mother has given away or sold most of dad's library. She began immediately after the funeral asking my girlfriend to choose a book. Out of the hundreds of volumes on the shelves, I don't think Joan could have made a better choice. It's about the crucifixion. In many ways, my mother's Catholicism was more form than content. But sacrifice was a principle that she grasped instinctively. Perhaps she also liked the poem because its juxtaposition of catastrophe with a plush domestic interior is life with my father in a nutshell. Dad's death was not a new catastrophe, but an old one that had been unfolding very slowly for a long time. The idea that I caused his death by telling my parents I was a lesbian is perhaps illogical. Causality implies connection, contact of some kind, and however convincing they might be, you can't lay hands on a fictional character. There's a scene in The Great Gatsby where a drunken party guest is carried away by the discovery that the volumes in Gatsby's library are not cardboard fakes. What thoroughness, what realism, he exclaims. Knew when to stop, too, didn't cut the pages. My father's books, the hardbound ones with their ragged dust jackets, the paperbacks with their creased spines, had clearly been read but in a way, Gatsby's pristine books and my father's worn ones signify the same thing the preference of a fiction to reality. If Fitzgerald's own life hadn't turned from fairy tale to tragedy, would his stories of disenchantment have resonated so deeply with my father? Gatsby in the pool, Zelda in the asylum, Scott in Hollywood, an alcoholic dying of a heart attack at 44. My father was 44 when he died, too. Struck by the coincidence, I counted out their lifespans. The exact same number of months and weeks, but Fitzgerald lived three days longer. For a wild moment, I entertained the idea that my father had timed his death with this in mind as some sort of deranged tribute. But that would only confirm that his death was not my fault that, in fact, it had nothing to do with me at all. And I'm reluctant to let go of that last tenuous bond. I wish I had a black slide there for a second. OK, I'm done with the reading part. And now I'm going to say um, it's partly due to the order in which these events occurred in my life that I've, I've felt responsible for my father's death. Like If I hadn't sent that letter, the whole chain of events would have been different, and, and the truck that hit my father um, that he likely jumped in front of might have passed that day without incident. And even now, 30 years after that happened, I, and even though I know better, I still feel responsible. Um, my brain knows that post hoc ergo propter hoc is a fallacy, but my, my psyche continues to fall for it. It's like what Linda was saying about you know remembering the stuff you said when you were nine. Like, it's all just in your head as if it only just happened. So for me, the process of writing this book was a kind of retrospective intervention in the sequence of events. I I don't tell the story in chronological order because it doesn't make sense to me that way. And I've always had trouble with sequence in writing. I've never been able to construct an outline uh, until I'm practically done with something. Like, I totally never got that in school when they would tell us to start with an outline. Like, how are you supposed to know what you're writing about until you write it? Um, It's only been after years of work on my current book, which is turning out to be a memoir about my mother, that I have even the slenderest grasp of its outline, of where it's going. Um, I'm going to show you something that I wrote the summer after I graduated from college in a letter to a friend. and This is just part of my personal insanity that um, I had the self-importance and the obsessiveness at age 20 to Xerox my correspondence and paste it into my journal. Um, But I I wrote in this, this is the letter, um, I'm having trouble lately with this mode of transcription, with writing, with horizontal composition. I have this continuity problem. I keep changing planes and I can't concentrate. And I drew this diagram. Uh, I'm sure I was completely stoned when I was doing this. (laughs) So I have uh, narrative flow going along horizontally, plunging down into illustrative detail, and then leveling off again into accident and the present, and then veering away into style. And then <laughs> the letter continues, I need several stenographers in order to get even some of it down on paper. There are so many dimensions to deal with that I need a means of graphic representation more facile, yet more descriptive than this pen, paper, hand, eye, sentence, word, alphabet method. It's so much slower than the speed of thought. And at this point, the letter starts to sprout, um, footnotes and drawings. I I like to think of this youthful manifesto as a a foreshadowing of the graphic storyteller I would eventually become. But at the time when I said graphic, I didn't mean actual drawing, I just knew I needed some kind of extra dimension to write in. But as it happens, graphic narrative has, has solved this problem for me by providing a way to follow more than one vector at a time. And I know comics is not the only way to do that, but it's the solution I've arrived at for myself. Um, Very early in my work on Fun Home, this memoir about my dad, I showed a a draft to my agent when when we were trying to sell it. And at that point I had only illustrated a little bit of the book because drawing is so time consuming and I didn't want to have to put a lot of work into something that I'd have to throw out or redo. So most of what my agent read looked like this. The pages were laid out like a comic and there were descriptions of the drawings that would eventually go there, but it was basically a skeleton. And my agent, among her other astute comments, said, you kind of weave in and out a lot, and with the two storylines going simultaneously and that back and forth in time, the the narrative occasionally gets a little murky. Um, And to me that meant, okay, I have absolutely no control over this material at all, she's just like being really gentle with me, but um, I think she was right if I had been writing with just words. Uh, But when I got these pages illustrated, she agreed that it did work, um, that the jumping back and forth in time and between storylines was no longer a problem. When you tell a story visually, you have a whole new syntax to draw on. Um, And I won't go on about that. Um, People people like Hilary Chute write whole books about this. Um, But I'll just give a... A very simplistic example of what I'm talking about, like this, this is a panel from Fun Home. I'm able to go directly from this, this drawing of my dad in like 1969 or so when I was little to this next panel of my father ten years earlier when he was in the army before I was even born um, in a very seamless way without saying anything. And then I'm able to seamlessly move into the letter my dad is writing and into the book he's writing his letter about. Uh, you can, I'm sure you, a good writer could do this with words too, but with pictures, once a reader learns the conventions, it's really quite effortless to assimilate all of this visual exposition. Um, it's not so effortless on my end, having to do all this work. Sometimes I feel like one of those uh, mother birds who chews up the food and regurgitates it in her baby's mouth, like I'm doing uh, a lot of work so the readers will have an easier time. Um, but anyhow, you're able to take these kind of wormhole shortcuts through time and space and still be coherent which, and legible, which is what's exciting to me about comics. And the, the comics page, t- it's telling a sequential story like a movie, but unlike a movie, there's this all-at-onceness to it. You can see the whole page spread, you can read at your own pace, you can reread or, or linger. I, I prefer to watch actual movies like that too, I'm like constantly hitting the pause button. Um, I'm going to talk very briefly about how I, how I write because people are always asking me, how do I write? Do I write or draw first? And I did start writing Fun Home in a word processing document, like a script or a screenplay, but I very quickly hit a dead end and realized I needed to, needed to write uh, in a drawing program. So I started writing in Adobe Illustrator. And I make, made a little template. I have a, a three tiers of two panels that I can quickly rearrange into any um, size or arrangement. So I have this great flexibility. I can re- redesign my panels with no mess, no fuss. Um, I have a digital font of my hand lettering. This is so crazy. This, I feel like I'm, uh, this is a crime to even be talking about this in the presence of Linda Berry. <laughs> Um, but I'm able to, I'm sorry, it's very cumbersome running this show. I'm able to just start typing anywhere on the page. I make a little text box and I can start writing. I can, um, what's this one? I don't know are out of order. I, comics is very space, and you have to be very concise. This is a fine sentence if you're writing prose, but I'm trying to get, rid of that dangling fourth line. So I, I edited it a little bit. So I got an extra eighth of an inch of space for my drawing. I can do things like go. Just stretch and pull stuff around on the page. Like, and I want to make that run across the whole page instead of half the page so it's easy to move the text, reshape the box. I uh, already did that. <laughs> I do actually use images at this stage. I, I can grab stuff off the web or scan things or make sketches and um, drag them into my program. That's what I'm doing here. I, I'm like, I made a sketch, and I, I scanned it in, and now I'm finding it. And I'm going to place it on this page in Adobe Illustrator. And the cool thing about this part is I'm able to size it exactly, like to make it fit just the way I want. Um, But when I get my pages written, each of them on a different Illustrator page, I place them all in a page layout program in InDesign so I can see the whole thing as a book, like a dummy of the book. And I can see how it's flowing and making sense as a whole. So I think. A thing that's interesting to me about comics is that you have to relate to the physical object of the book in a way that you don't if you're just writing with words, like the two-dimensional field of the page, the three-dimensional package of pages. Um, Writers don't necessarily have to think about that. So I've been thinking a lot about, perhaps too much, about time and its linearity or non-linearity, about sequence, about whether they're is any logic to chronology. And all of that has kind of suffused this book that I'm, I've been writing for several years now about my mother, um, which in a way is turning out to be a, kind of a meta-memoir about the process of writing the book about my father. And, and I'm, <laughs> I know, it's crazy. So I'm gonna end by reading you the very beginning of that book, which is a nice bookend, I think, to my beginning, and which I read to you from the book about my dad. Um, The first chapter begins with a dream I once had about escaping from a dark basement and jumping with this great feeling of joy and surrender into a brook. And then the chapter proper begins. This story is about telling this story. And it begins when I began to tell another story. I had the dream about the brook right before I told my mother I was writing a memoir about my father. He died when I was 19, now I was 39. I was making the long drive from Vermont to Pennsylvania to visit my family for Christmas. I'd had some practice in telling my mother difficult things. I felt kind of like I did 20 years earlier when I was preparing to tell her I was a lesbian. And kind of like I did five years before that as I was working up the courage to tell her I'd gotten my first period. That had taken me six months. (laughs) This story, a memoir about my mother, could just as well begin with either of those scenes. But as I consider moving the beginning further back in time, before the coming out, before the first period, I see that perhaps the real problem with this memoir about my mother is that it has no beginning. Sort of like how I'd understood human reproduction as a child. I was an egg inside my mother when she was still an egg inside her mother and so forth and so on. A dizzying, infinite regress. There's a certain relief in knowing that I am a terminus. Even if I'd ever had the slightest urge to reproduce, it's too late now. I'm running out of eggs. My clockwork-like menstrual cycle skipped its first beat the very week in my 45th year that I sat down to begin writing about my mother. Of course, the point at which I began to write the story is not the same as the point at which the story begins. You can't live and write at the same time. It had been a Stroman sunbeam bread truck that killed my father, that my father likely jumped in front of. After such a curiously literal and figurative brush with death, telling my mother about the book loomed rather smaller. And a few days later, returning with her from a string of errands, I did it. And that's the end of that.
1: So I feel like a talk show host, it's kind of fun actually. I guess one thing I'm really curious about with both of you is, so you started doing comics in the late 70s but didn't publish your first um, autobiographical work until 2002. You started publishing comics in the early 80s and didn't publish your first autobiographical book, although you did a story or two until 2006. So how did you decide to turn to nonfiction?
3: I personally, I feel like I was, in doing my Dykes to Watch Out for comics for all these years, in a way I was just creating, like, digging out a little space for myself to be able to tell my own story, which is such a queer particular story. I couldn't have told it 25 years earlier. Um, So it was sort of like a kind of preparation. I wasn't thinking of it that way at the time, but I now feel like that's what I was doing. Like I couldn't, I had to grow up too. People shouldn't write memoir when
2: they're young.
3: You have (laughs) to wait.
2: (laughs) Not not if they're past the age of seven. Prior to that though. (laughs) Right. Um, Well, you know, I've always written autobiographical stories, but I just never showed anyone. Um, Part of the technique of working that I learned from my teacher Marilyn Frasca was all about this associative memory and um, even though I was studying to be a painter, when I studied with her, um, the way that she taught me how to be a painter was her whole thing was this certain state of mind with a physical activity. And the state of mind, I can describe it really fast for you. It's the same state of mind you had when you were eating cereal when you were a kid. So you remember how you're eating cereal, you have about three bites, and suddenly the box looks fantastic? Do you know what I mean? It's like, this is the most interesting box I've ever seen. (laughs) And then you turn it to the side, and there are the ingredients. And you read them again. Right? So it's sort of like, fructose. I'm going to name my first baby fructose. so my training with Marilyn was maintaining that certain state of mind, which sometimes I call the serial state of mind, and, um, and, then, and then doing a physical activity, which in, in that case was handwriting. And so, and then it's, uh, and, and there's a way that, you know, I, I wrote these autobiographical stories. So actually I've been writing autobiographical stories since I was 19, but it never occurred to me to do anything with them. And then um, people always assumed that my um, comic strip was autobiographical with my friends Arna and Marlis and uh, those other ones who, by the way, one night I had been out with the boys, myself, and um, I was laying in bed and I realized that I was never going to meet them, my characters, and I got really sad and I was crying and and I woke up in the morning and realized it wasn't that sad, I was just drunk. But for me, what, what made me start writing the, do it in comic strips was because the internet happened, and suddenly, because doing uh, long color comic strips, you couldn't find a place that would print your stuff, especially if you were a freaky chick, and so, um, so it was when Salon, actually, salon.com contacted me and asked me if I wanted to do some stories, and I had the option of doing stuff in color for the first time, so I thought, I'll try it, and that's how I ended up doing it, but I'd, I've always done it.
1: There are so many ways in which I think your work speaks to each other's, but one thing that I've been dying to ask you for years is, why are both of you so obsessed with D.W. Winnicott? <laughs> ah,
2: that's a good My question. whole book is about Winnicott. So can, With your, can, mo- your mom's book? Yeah. That's- D.W. Winnicott, she's asking why we were so obsessed with this guy, he was a British
1: Psycho- he was a pediatrician. He, was, he started as a pediatrician. Yeah, he was a kid's doctor. A kid's doctor. Allison even has a cat named Don, after Donald Winnicott. <laughs> but he's been, he's been, except for my teacher
2: Marilyn, I'd say Winnicott was like my second big guy in my life. And his stuff is really interesting and really elliptical and kind of hard to read. But it's, um, he understands something about the relationship between play uh, that kids uh, start doing when they're very young um, as a... Would you say that it's th- the way that they play actually is this funny way of sort of trying to fix stuff that's going on with them? Yeah, totally, totally. And when he, when he would work with his child patients, he would just
3: give them toys. There's the most amazing account of his analysis of a like a two-and-a-half-year-old kid who's just like, you know, two-and-a-half-year-olds don't make any sense. This little girl is like babbling with the toy trains or cars, and she kept coming over to him and saying, and another one, and another one, and another one, like little children do. And out of that nonsense, he realized that the kid was talking about the new baby, the other baby who had like,
2: replaced her. Like he could read her play. Yeah, and he, he really has this sense of, uh, he said this thing, he thinks human beings are the only people who start out as an open, flower when they're born and gradually become a very tight <laughs> bud. And he, um, a lot of the things that he did with kids, it was a, there's a game, we all played it when we were kids, but he really did something with it, and he called it the squiggle game. And it's that game where you make a uh, scribble, then you pass it to your friend, you're in mass, it's really uh, boring, and then they turn it into something, and then they pass it to you. Well, if you do this with a kid, he knew that you'd get a story uh, pretty quick, and I started to get very interested in, the, um, in story structure, in how the whole reason we know about story structure is because it already exists. The only reason we can identify the three act is because that's what we do. And so, as soon as I read about this squiggle thing, I thought, I'm going to try this out. So, I was on an airplane. There was a, a mom, and she put in her little earbuds and went <laughs> into wherever moms go when they're with a digital <laughs> device. And then, um, then there was this little kid sitting next to me, he was about eight. And then I was sitting there, and um, so I started drawing, which is what you do if you want to uh, meet a kid. You can't just go and say, I'm interested in your transitional object. <laughs> you know? You just, you just draw. And so I was drawing, and he looks over, and he says, uh, he's looking at my drawing, and I said, I'm a cartoonist. And he says, draw some." So I drew a chicken. And he goes, you are? And I go, I know. And so, so I asked him if he wants to play the scribble game. So uh, we make two or three passes, and he goes, oh, ooh, I have a story, and you can make it into a comic strip, which is what I always thought creative inspiration would be like. <laughs> I have a novel. Um, <laughs> but this is the story that he told uh, verbatim, and I did make it into a comic strip. And this came from, directly from Winnicott with that squiggle game. And here's his story. Uh, he, his name was Jack. And the story, uh, he goes, The the name of the story is Chicken Attack by Jack. (laughs) So here's the story verbatim. One morning, a chicken was eaten by a man. The man went to work. His stomach started to feel funny. He went to the portalette and then he went. (laughs) The chicken came out. The man was surprised. The chicken was also surprised. The chicken ran from the portalet to the construction site. They put the chicken in charge, and from then on, the chicken was (laughs) boss. It's an oddly satisfying story, isn't it? It, and don 't you feel better after having heard it <laughs> uh, i mean that 's what I, I mean I really think that this stuff has a biological function, and part of it is making us and is there any part of you going you know what would make that narrative even tighter i mean <laughs> <laughs> But he understood something about a spontaneous ordering force that, uh, that we have that is, that is part of storytelling and I believe that this stuff I, I know in my life and it would seem in your life too that with this, I believe that there are certain things that we cannot work out any other way than through this thing we call images. I just think it's, I think of them as like our external organs, and that we absolutely need them to survive, so... Um, yeah, so Winnicott's been huge just in terms, because I've always struggled, I'm, a, I'm kind of a funny lady, but I've struggled with depression my whole life, like really, really struggled with it. and. That his, his, The way he looked at babies, the way he looked at children, and the way he looked at images was one of these things that really made me feel like I could find my way and keep from killing myself and others.
3: <laughs> well he, he he suffered from depression too, and I think that 's what gave him some of his amazing insight and also his, his mother was depressed, and a lot of his work is just his own self working this out and He was a person just his life inspires me so much because he he did not he was not a flower that curled up; he just unfurled as the older he got, the more brilliant and wild and free his thinking got and um, he 's just a very inspiring person
2: his pr- He said his prayer was uh, Uh, His one prayer was, Lord, um, let me be alive when I die. No, but it is true, right? And I'm like, no, not me. Lord, let me be
1: really drunk (laughs) and possibly very stoned. (laughs) But here's an honest question. So you were talking about play and images. Do either of you think that there's some particular relationship with comics and play, that somehow comics is a place um, that expresses that or where that's worked out.
2: I think so. I do. I do. I think. Well, I think that drawing and writing and handwriting um, are connected to it. What do you think? We ne- also neither of us had kids, right? <laughs> <laughs> I, I couldn't sit
3: around doing this if I had kids. Well, I don't. know, Maybe I could, but. I, you know, st- I am always struggling to feel more play in my work. You can see the like, laborious lengths I go to and the distance I am from my, my pencil or, or brush. I, I've, I'm not saying I want to give that up, it's part of how I work, but I, I am not accessing joy in my work in the way that I think I could. I'm always trying to
2: get there. But I think, there's this, like, I think there's a lot of play in it because of all the tiny little pieces. And even watching you move those things around and show how this stuff can move, it reminds me of a kid like who is like the <laughs> Lego master. Okay, check this out. Okay, and then you do this and then and that. Now it twirls and he walks. Like, I mean, that's what, that's what strikes me about your work is there is, a, to me, there is a real playful because I think this idea that play and fun, I think when we're adults, we mix those two things up. Yes. We totally mix them up, and we think. And if you look at a kid who's in deep play, he never looks like he's having fun. But he doesn't look like he's having a bad time. But he's elsewhere. It's that same place when you're reading a really good novel. um, Kind of how you look when you're reading it. You're not reading it like this. (laughs) You know, you're kind of. You're. you're, It may be the best novel in the world, but you're not.
1: So would you say that your interest in Winnicott has some connection to the formal issues that you were talking about tonight that you're interested in with comics? No. No.
3: (laughs) I I might be able to come up with some theory for that, but no, I'm mostly interested in him because I want him to be my mother and save (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I think that's accurate. And 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 I do that through my drawings, too. I guess there's... I could figure something out, but I can't on the spot. (laughs)
1: Um, well can I ask both of you about comics and memory and the relationship of comics and memory so you've talked to me um, and to others about this idea that the past has no order whatsoever so images are just sort of coming at you and you talked tonight about um, sequence and temporality and how comics um, can represent um, sort of the breaking up of sequence or, or irregularity can you talk about comics and memory? I
2: don't know about comics and memory. I mean, I know I use comics uh, and I use memory together. And those have the the comics, that writing and drawing, um, that tends to be how I do it. But again, this just goes back to how I learned from my teacher this idea of a state of mind with a physical activity. And it turns out the one I like best is comics. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't know about, but it's a good way to represent memory. But what I mean about the past not having any order, anytime time that you are walking down the street and you smell a smell and there's your Aunt Agnes's kitchen, that's out of order, right? Here it is, it's coming back, and it comes back in, in so completely, and in such, a, in an instant. And it happens to us all day long and we don't even notice it. There's Aunt Agnes's kitchen and then you're looking on your, your uh, <laughs> iPhone again. Um, but, but my feeling is if you could freeze that not only would you be, see Aunt Agnes's kitchen, you would find that you could turn around in that image and say what was behind you and what was to your right and what was to your left. So I feel that the entire past, I think of it like an ocean and it's with us all every minute of every day, the whole time. Yeah, it's like this
3: pool that's just constantly filling up with everything that happens and it doesn't go in, in any order, it's all just sloshing around. Mm-hmm. Uh, but how does that relate to comics? I, I mean, for me, there's something about We talked about this before, touching the page, about the ink coming out of my pen, coming out of my hand, like, there's some kind of transmission of my authentic experience that for me happens in that line, in that point where the line comes out of me, Mm -hmm. that I can't really explain beyond that.
2: Well, it it seems to me that those things are a formula for an experience. And what blows my mind about your work is it can sit in a book, just quietly, <laughs> you know, two, three years go by, and then you open it up, and even though your experience couldn't have been further from mine in a lot of ways, except we both had closeted parents, my mom's a lesbian, which is the most wonderful thing about her, and maybe the only good thing about her, but, um, <laughs> um, but, there's some, but when I read your work, even though that experience was not the same as mine. Um, it felt like I was reading about my, I felt like I was seeing my experience reflected. And um, that's one of the things I think is so interesting about images. It's almost like, you remember how you'd see, when you were a little kid, you'd see people going on a camping trip with their kids and they looked happy. And I'm sure they were aliens in there and they were just robot feet, but they looked really happy. <laughs> and they'd be pulling along this thing behind them that was one of those pop out trailers yeah didn 't you want one yeah. like so bad right that 's what I feel your book is it like sits like this, and then all of a sudden it 's this pop out trailer for this very, very big experience, and um, that 's what I mean about this external organ or this or this other place, so instead of memory for me, I think it was just it 's something about seeing uh, one 's experience reflected, and the cool part is. It, is, it does reflect the experience, but that formula, that experience has no fixed meaning. That mean, That is to say, if I read your book uh, again in two years, it's gonna be a different thing for me. And that, I find fascinating. That it, It's sort of like that blank square on Scrabble, you know, that's like the, the one, yeah. like, I, I don't care, I'd rather <laughs> lose than give that up, you know? <laughs> so that's what I think that's interesting about images is that they that they don't have a fixed meaning. And, uh, and I'm just gonna go and tell that quick story about, um, about this neuroscientist who's another guy I like a lot, uh, V.S. Ramachandran, whose um, expertise was with phantom limb pain. So he, uh, he had a patient that had a particularly intractable case of phantom limb pain, and his, his, uh, his hand was gone, but his sensation was that, it, I always say that I think there's phantom limb pleasure too, but no one calls their doctor about it, you know? <laughs> My missing hand feels fantastic. Um, but he had this guy and this guy, his, his, his sensation was that not only was his fist there but it was in this hard, hard clench that was driving him crazy and after about three years it really had eroded his feeling that life was worth living. And again, this is what I always think images get back to. This feeling that life is worth living. Not really worth living. Just a little bit more than not worth living. And so. Um, so, Ramachandran had this really interesting idea, and he, he built a mirror box. And what he did was it had a hole on one side, and so he had the guy put his, uh, his hand in, and there was a mirror here that reflected it, so when the guy looked down, he saw, it, he saw a perfect reflection of his hand, as if it were still there. And then he told the guy to open it. And when he did, he saw his hand open, and the problem went away. And that's what I think images do, your book in particular. When you talk about this thing that you carry around with you, that there's no way, you know, even in this piece that you showed about telling your mom why do you got to do it, there's, in the course of human existence, we have so many of these. And it's, wherever humans are, this is going to be a problem, and there is no other way, as far as I can tell, to open some of these besides a reflective image, which usually, t- which we call the arts, and it's that thing that's contained by, like, your story. So that because that seemed to do that for you, it also did it for me, and that's that's pretty badass, (laughs) you know. It is. Well,
3: yeah. I mean, mean, that's that's what your
1: work does too.
2: We're making out now.
1: (laughs) Well, let's have a round of applause for Allison and Linda.